Genesis chapter 25. We've got a Bible flip over there. If you don't have a Bible um, and you would like to read along, I, I would suggest it uh, strongly. Just raise your hand and we will pass one up to you make sure you get it. Does anybody need a Bible this morning? Anybody? Okay. All right. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim and Letushim and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephor and Hanak and Abida and Eldaah. These were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. These are all the years, literally all the days of all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. And then his sons Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. And there Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. This morning we come to the end of Abraham's life. We've been walking with this sojourner of faith for some three months now. And it seems only fitting that this man who the Bible refers to as the father of the faithful and the friend of God, it seems proper at this point to pause and consider the death of Abraham. That's long enough. You see, the picture is fading. Abraham is now going away. The portrait is deteriorating. But that happens. The pictures fade, the portraits deteriorate, and I have news from the Louvre. Leonardo da Vinci's most famous painting of that mysterious enigmatic woman, the Mona Lisa, is apparently deteriorating at an alarming rate. After nearly 500 years of life in public eye, Mona Lisa is losing her smile. Artists, curators, and restorationists are very concerned and have undertaken to see what can be done to protect this masterpiece of da Vinci. Painted on a thin panel of poplar wood, the picture is changing shape. It's bending, it's wearing out, and no one knows why. What has been called the most perfect picture ever painted is growing old. It's fading. It's deteriorating. And I've got news for the loop. Deterioration happens. That's the deal. I'm sorry, Leonardo, it's a beautiful portrait. No one's really sure what she's smiling about. But she will fade. The picture fades. Life deteriorates. Now, I heard by way of the grapevine that there were those of you who were a bit disappointed in Abraham at this last point, at this last stage of his life. For one thing, because he remarried. And in the story of Abraham and Sarah, it's such a wonderful romance, such a wonderful story of the two of them and, and how they struggle through life together and ultimately come out the other side, having Isaac finally getting the big picture with God. Abraham and Sarah hanging together, and now Abraham goes off and he remarries. How long did you wait, Abraham? A couple of months? Six, seven months? A few years? Actually, he waited 20 years. Abraham was alone for 20 years. Well, not exactly. You see, 
Like the Mona Lisa, when you look at the life of Abraham, the Mona Lisa, the seemingly perfect portrait, which is now losing its luster, in the last few years of Abraham's life, something is mentioned that takes the sheen off of his spirituality, and it ain't remarriage. It's what happened before the remarriage, in that 20-year period, and then after, ongoing with that remarriage, there's a problem with the picture. There's a trouble with the type. Now, we've been looking at Abraham and Isaac and Rebecca and Eliezer and all these different characters recently and talking about how they are portraits. Abraham of God the Father and Isaac of Jesus the Son. These beautiful prophetic pictures. These types of future things. But the type breaks down. In verse 6, we see that to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. Now, I don't know if that verse bothers you, but it did me. I hit that verse and just, what? The sons of his concubines. Well, what's the Hebrew word for concubines? Mistresses. Unmarried women with whom he slept and had under children. Let's be clear. Abraham had a cadre of concubines, a multiplicity of mistresses. Abraham, the father of the faith, the friend of God, had several women, concubines. And again, we come to a place in Scripture that personally, in my lacking human wisdom, I probably would have just left out. There are a lot of things that happen in the Old Testament, things people do, that when you come upon it and read it, you go, oh... Oh, I'm not going to show that to my non-Christian friend. He sees that, he's out of here. He wouldn't even consider this book. These people, they do these things, they do these horrible things, these disappointing things. The picture of Abraham seems to be deteriorating as I look at it. But listen to me on this. In the scripture... Portraits, illustrations, pictures of greater, more wonderful things are definitely seen in these Old Testament people. But, as Paul says in Romans 3, verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, Paul says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And there is none who does good. Not even one. And when we look at these historical people in the Bible, we can see all kinds of fantastic things, pictures of things to come. However, when we look at their life, invariably we will end up disappointed. Invariably Abraham is going to do something. He's going to lack trust and go sleep with his maidservant Hagar. But then we think, oh, well, okay, he figured that one out. That didn't produce the best possibilities for the future. So ultimately he realizes that God blesses Abraham and Sarah with Isaac. And you begin to think he's getting it. And then Abraham goes up Mount Moriah with Isaac in complete faithfulness and trust to the Lord. And you're thinking, good, good. At the end of his life, he gets it. He's locked in. He's dialed in with the Father. This is good. And then I come to the end and he's got concubines. Abraham. Why? Well, you may say, well, Rick, the law hadn't been written and it wasn't really clear about how many wives a man they had. Oh, yeah, well, Jesus said, hey, it was like this from the beginning. The Father chose Adam for Eve, Eve for Adam, one man for one woman for one life. That was the deal from the start. And Abraham knew that. But the old man lost his wife and was lonely. 
So he found another woman and another and another and another and another and another. And those of us men who study the Bible, if we're truly honest with ourselves, say, why can't I have some concubines? And then if we're truly honest with ourselves, we say, because we couldn't handle it. One wife is enough. No offense. Fine. Saying that. Can you imagine that though, guys? <laughs> I mean, literally, it's hard enough for us guys to understand women anyway. But to have like 20 or 30 of them all getting on your back about stuff, I don't understand. I'm sorry. Where am I? We may sure up and get on my back. We may talk about, even be encouraged by great people of faith like Abraham, but you've got to understand, you must see this. Abraham, this portrait of God the Father in the Old Testament, has mistresses. Isaac, this portrait of Jesus the Son, you're not going to believe this, lies about his wife Rebecca and calls her his sister, like father, like son. Rebecca deceives her own husband, Jacob his own father, Moses commits murder, David commits adultery and murder, Elijah runs fear, fearful and faithless, and on and on and on and on it goes. Peter denies Jesus, Barnabas plays the hypocrite, and even Paul himself, Paul the writer of so many of the letters in the, in the New Testament, Paul says, I am the chiefest of sinners. I got an email just this last week. Asking about Jacob and why God blessed Jacob when he was deceitful. Great question. And I began thinking about that. And then I ran across Abraham and his concubines and the whole thing came together. I saw a pattern developing here. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. So what is God to do? How does he deal with that? How in the world does God, the Almighty Father, save us, use us to save us, work through us, when us are deteriorating, when we don't have it together. One of the biggest confusions that people have in the world, Christian and non-Christian alike, is the thought that I've got to clean it up before I can come to the Father. Before I can be of any use to God, my life has to be gelled, it has to be together. I have to be spiritual and holy and righteous. I've got to work these things out. And then, and then possibly, if I'm just good enough, God can use me. Folks, God used Abraham while he was sinning. God worked through Isaac even during his deceit. God called David a man after his own heart. Though he knew there would be an adulterous, murderous affair. Because God is faithful. And because God is a God of grace. You say, if people like Abraham, Moses, Elijah, and Paul can't do it, who can? And that's the point. Nobody can. Prepare yourselves then, because as we make this journey with people of God along the road of faith, as we study these things, there are many personal potholes, many major mistakes, many serious sins. And I want you to hear what Paul has to say about Abraham and this man of faith and this whole situation. If you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 3. Actually, Romans chapter 4. While you're flipping there, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says something that his readers in the first century might have thought, could have thought, maybe were confused by, thought was heretical. Because Paul wrote 
He wrote to Jews who were lawgivers and to Romans who were law Romans who were lawgivers, Jews who were law livers. These people were very focused on law. And Paul wrote to them, and in Romans chapter three, bottom line, Paul says justification does not come from regulation. It's not how it works. You don't become clean by living the law. He makes this very clear. In fact, in the first three chapters of Romans, he goes first to the world. And in the world, he says, hey, the world doesn't have it together. And then he goes to the Greeks and says, oh, the Greeks don't have it together. And then he goes to the Jews and he says, the Jews don't have it together. There is none who is righteous. No, not one, not Jew, not Greek, nobody in the world. You're all a mess. And we get down to the end of Romans chapter 3 and we're going, that's very good news. That doesn't feel very good. I'm really trying. I've been at church every Sunday for the last, like, three weeks in a row. And that's not good enough? Not, not even close. Well, I've been at church for the last 12 years every Sunday in a row, except for that one time when my son had a whooping cough and I couldn't make it. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. It has nothing to do with your attendance. It has nothing to do with how much you study the Bible or how clean your life is. You are still not righteous. And Paul writes to these people, Romans 3.28, We maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. You need to understand this. We need to get it because we don't buy it right now. And I would ask you to pray for our elders because they're discussing my salary. <laughs> so pray, pray hard. Okay. And pray positively. Okay. But as they go through this, it's, it's such a weird and interesting process. And, and I, I'm so thankful for these guys because they're really lifting it up in prayer. They're really the big question is what does God want to do with Rick's salary? And and it is it is the one decision, by the way, at, at the bridge that I will have nothing to do with because I don't need to have anything to do with it. God knows what He's doing, and He's going to tell them, and they'll tell me, and and either I'll weep or I'll shout for joy. But it's not my business. And I'm telling you this because as we talked about salary, it was a really bizarre conversation. Yesterday in our meeting, we're sitting there and, and questions were asked like, well, what, what are your kind of needs and, and, and what, what do you think? Um, you know, and we're all just trying to figure out blindly, how do we pick this thing? How do we figure this? And in my mind, this is what's going on. Well, I've been in ministry for 16 years. Got some uh, degrees under my belt. I've had quite a bit of training. And I think that I am worthy qualified to reach X salary level. And you know what? It has nothing to do with it. The reality is, even with my salary, it's what God wants to give me. Period. In our lives, though we get used to, in America especially, we build ourselves up. We develop those resumes, don't we? We've had them. We want them to be strong. We want them to look good so that at the next job, when we lay that out there, they go, wow, you've really worked hard. And that translates immediately into our spiritual life and we think, man, i got to work hard. Look at that guy over there. Man, he's an elder. Oh, look at that guy over there. Man, he's on the worship team. I wonder if I'll ever have a chance to stand up and share a communion. I don't know. It's all about work with us. Look at Romans chapter 4 verse 1. And I want you to watch this closely and listen carefully. Paul writes, what, shall then, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? Now this is very important. 
Because the verse actually can be translated one of two ways. It can say, as written in the New American Standard Bible, what shall we say then that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found? Or it can read, what shall we say that our forefather Abraham has found according to the flesh? I think that's the more accurate translation. What has Abraham found according to the flesh? Because Paul is now going to talk about the power, the strength of the works of the flesh. What is it that Abraham figured out? What did he discover about the flesh that it doesn't have the strength to justify a person? The flesh does not have the power to justify a person, to make a person right before God. Look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, oh, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And now Paul quotes, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now Abraham did good things, folks. There were times when he behaved amazingly well, and if I tried to stack my life up against his, though I don't have concubines, there are a whole lot of things that I'm a whole lot less faithful than he is, was. Again, as I said several weeks ago, the thought of taking my eldest son up a mountain and preparing to sacrifice him on an altar makes me shudder. I don't think I could do it. I'm not sure I would have that strength of the flesh. Abraham had the strength. But, Paul says, it had nothing to do with his flesh. Abraham didn't earn, but he did learn. He learned that faith was the key. Now... There's a contradiction between what Paul says and what James says, or seemingly so. But look at a little more of what Paul says. Verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Makes sense, right? You work eight hours, you expect to be paid for those eight hours. You put in your work, you take home your paycheck. Paul goes on to say, But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see, faith doesn't earn you. Or works don't earn you. Faith doesn't even earn you. Faith gives you credit. Faith in God allows God then to pay you even though you haven't earned it. Even though you've done nothing to earn it at all. Now, flip over to James real quickly. Toward the end of the New Testament, after the book of Hebrews, James chapter 2. Now hold this thought of what Paul has been saying about Abraham in your minds, and listen to what James says about the same man. James chapter 2, verse 21. James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Uh oh. <laughs> Oh, and he was justified by faith. Now James is saying he was justified by works. Uh oh, there's a problem, red flag. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? James goes on. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So Paul says it's faith, and James says, but it's works expressing that faith. Which is it? 
Is it my works that save me or is it my faith that saves me? Now listen very close. You, you need to pay attention to get this. When Paul says Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness, in Romans chapter 4, Paul is referring back to Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Genesis 15.6 says, Then he believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. At this point, in Genesis 15, Abraham hadn't done a thing. He hadn't done a blessed thing to earn that credit of righteousness. He just believed. It's a conversation Abraham was having with God, and God says, You're going to have a son, and I'm going to bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, and then you will be a, a great nation, and Abraham believes it. And God says, check, one credit of righteousness for Abraham. He didn't do anything. And Paul's referring back to that. Now when James is talking about the works or the faith and the works working together of Abraham, he's referring to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, when Abraham stood on Mount Moriah, prepared to offer up Isaac. Well, what works had he done by then? You know what? None. Oh, but, but, but he went up the mountain, didn't he? He prepared the altar, didn't he? He laid Isaac on top. He raised the knife. But he didn't follow through. He still did no works. He was prepared to do works. His behavior was showing, revealing where his faith was. And before the work was done of the knife going through his son... Before the work could save Abraham, quote-unquote save, before he could do anything to earn his righteousness, God said, wait, I see your faith. I see your faith. When James talks about works, what he's talking about is the behavior that is a natural outpouring and outgrowth of faith. We get it backwards. We try to work our way into faith, and God says, no, believe your way, and the works will come on their own. You have faith first. Focus on the Father. Listen to his word. Follow him. Pray to him. Talk to him. Ask him for strength. Ask him to increase your faith. The works will come on their own. It's amazing to me that Abraham stood there on the very same ground as you and me and anyone else who believes. The same level ground that you this morning stand next to Abraham. The great father of faith and the keeper of concubines. The man who was so great in his belief and yet still in the flesh like you and me. You know why Christians still sin after they become Christians? Because there's a war going on. The flesh and the spirit are still battling it out. They're still having it out. We said this a few weeks back. The one that you feed is the one that's going to win. The spirit, if you're feeding the spirit, constantly nourishing the spiritual things in your life, it will grow stronger and it will put down the flesh. But if you're feeding the flesh, it's going to win. The trouble with a lot of us as Christians is we feed both. And so we don't know why there's all this turmoil in our lives, this struggle back and forth. Because we're feeding flesh and spirit instead of one or the other. Well, I don't believe that it's a coincidence that both times Abraham makes a flesh decision instead of a faith decision, the one thing that brings him back to faith is Isaac. Isaac is the one who brings Abraham back to faith. In Genesis 21, Abraham sends away his son of the flesh, Ishmael. Why? For Isaac's sake. 
And in this morning's key verse, flip back there to Genesis chapter 25, verse 6. It tells us, To the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Before he died, Abraham recognized yet again that something was problematic. That the concubines, the flesh, the things that he had done there, it needed to be out of the picture. Because there was one only begotten son. One heir. Isaac. He sends away the work of the flesh for Isaac's sake. One more time, who is Isaac a picture of? Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. Now, you may read of Abraham's concubines and be disappointed. Or maybe it's someone else's mistresses that disappoint you. Maybe it's someone else's work of the flesh that makes you feel bad. Maybe it's someone else who's kind of turned you off to the things of God. I reject God because my parents said they were Christians, but they treated us so badly at home. They were outright hypocrites. Oh, it was that pastor's fault. Man, when I saw how he treated people, I retreated from the church. Man, Christians are pictures of Christ. I don't want to hang with them. And the picture deteriorates. And disappointment sets in. And we begin to wonder, is there anybody that we can trust? Is there anybody that we can stand before? Folks, here's the deal. When it all comes down, Christians are no better or worse than Abraham or anybody else. We all stand on equal footing on the same blood-soaked ground that Abraham stood on when he almost offered his son Isaac. The mud of Mount Moriah, the clay of Calvary. Now the blood, the ground wasn't blood soaked when Abraham stood there, but it would be later by the blood of Jesus. We are on equal footing before the cross. We stand equal. Every man, woman, child in the world stands the same before Jesus at the cross. Because Jesus is the perfect picture. Jesus is the one type, the one illustration who is absolutely flawless. He doesn't wear out. He doesn't deteriorate. He's the perfect picture. The perfect picture? Rick, what do you mean? The perfect picture of what? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the brightness of His glory. The express image of His person. Talking about God. And folks, that word image is character. Character. Jesus is the character of the Father, the nature of God. John chapter 1 verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He, Jesus, has explained Him. The perfect picture. And in John 14, 7, Jesus talking with His disciples, His apostles, on the night before He was betrayed, and He says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. And from now on you've known Him, and you have seen him. Philip. Philip was excited by this. And he says, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us. And Jesus says, and I love this. Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? To show you the Father. Don't you know me? Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And when we look at Jesus, what we see is the perfect, unfading, unspoiled, flawless portrait of God. You're not going to see God truly in anybody else. No other Christians, 
are going to be able to maintain your respect ad nauseum for the rest of their lives. No biblical characters can handle it. Because we're all sinners. But Jesus never wears out. He never fades. He is the perfect picture. And we're going to pray. But I hope that you can grasp this. Man, when I first started, and it's been recent, first started to actually understand that it wasn't what I did that either saved me or made me righteous. It was like a, a fresh wind of the Spirit just blew through my life. All the pressure thing that we put on ourselves. Oh, so you're saying we can just go out and do whatever? You know what? Yeah, you can. You can. But the more you love Jesus, the more you pour yourself into Him, the more you trust Him, the more your works are going to take care of themselves. What James is saying, show me your, your faith and I'll show you works. What he's saying is, hey, if you have faith, it's going to be evident. It's going to be obvious. Everybody knows. So may I encourage you this morning to stop trying so hard. To relax. Spend your energy, your effort on entering into the rest of God. And having faith in Him. And if you don't believe in Jesus, or if you've never made a faith commitment to Him, we're going to pray and I want to give you opportunity to do that. Let's bow together. Jesus, none is righteous, no, not one, but none is like you, not one. And as we scurry around here on planet Earth trying to figure things out, we're reminded this morning of a Father, a God who loves us so much that He chose us, You chose us, before we ever made one decision regarding You. We sing how I love Jesus because He first loved me. And that's really the bottom line here, Lord. You loved us first and we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We still don't. understand that it's faith in your grace that saves. This morning, if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you pray this prayer after me? Dear Lord, I am a sinner. I have failed in my life. I don't have the power to be good enough for you. But your word tells me that it's not my power that saves, it's yours. And so, this morning, I accept you as my Lord and as my Savior to take control of my life. I confess my sin to you and my need for your blood, the blood that was poured out on the cross when you died for me. And I want the new life, the life that you showed us when you resurrected from the dead. I believe, I believe that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Come into my life and change me. And work your will out through me. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
time this morning, I just want to encourage you to come see me in the back after we're done. Okay?